0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Melanin Margin, the weekly chat show where conversations about race are never off the table. We're your hosts, Quavi Andre Williams. And Daquan Wilson. So let's get into this week's conversation. What's hot on the table this week? In an
1: article written by Keke Arujo on the number one black enterprise, we learned that a white playwright, Claire Coss, has created a theor- theatrical production based on the brutal killings of 14-year-old Emmett Till. The play will audaciously tell Till's story through the eyes of a fictional white high school teacher in Mississippi, Roanne Taylor. Roanne is portrayed as progressive as the character, quote, is against Jim Crow laws, segregation and racial inequality, end quote. The play will chronicle how Roanne feels horrible as she navigates racism, but she keeps her mouth shut. Seemingly centering herself, Koss stated that Till's death significantly impacted her while she was a student at Louisiana State University Baton Rouge campus. She said that she felt compelled to keep telling Emmett's story. Quote, Emmett Till is in our lifetime. He is in my lifetime. I want people to understand the grave parallels between the world over 60 years ago to today's world, from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin to Dante Wright. It is still happening and we must continue to shed light on these stories. I am reminded of Mamie Till Mobley's words. The world must see what was done to my son. The world must help me tell the story. And so we will. Black folks on Twitter rightfully gave costs the business for even creating Emmett Till, a new American opera. Arujo goes on to say that Till's death is synonymous with the very plague that continues to harm Black people. Instead of insisting on telling our stories, maybe progressive white people would fare better centering the atrocities of their people without involving us. But I'm going to pass the conversation off to you. Is this her place to tell this story, or is it just another
0: case of white savior syndrome? DAQUAN, all I have to say is, bitch, you better be joking. Um, <laughs> this, this isn't white savior syndrome, because the white person in the play isn't saving a Black character. Um, I think what this play is giving is so much worse than that because it's capitalizing on the horrific tragedy of Emmett Till for clout and money, while also centering a white voice and character as the narrative storyteller. A story literally titled Emmett Till in American Opera isn't even about Emmett Till. It's about how uncomfortable his lynching makes a white woman feel. like. I think the fuck not. I mean, I've discussed this before on my TikTok, but I think it bears repeating. Um, There has been a serious problem with supposed allies invading a space that they are supposed to be uplifting and co-opting said space as their own. As an ally, your job is to protect and amplify the voices of the marginalized communities that you're defending. You are never supposed to be their voice. This is a classic case of performative allyship and white guilt. This white woman, feels bad for racism and felt compelled to keep telling Emmett Till's story. But apparently apparently, her compulsion wasn't strong enough to keep her from centering herself as a white character within a story depicting black trauma. I mean, even in the description of the main character, it says that she is intended to represent what Martin Luther King Jr. called the ultimate tragedy, tragedy the silence of good people. And let me tell you a secret, Claire. Um, we don't need a play about the silence of supposedly good people because as marginalized people, we see it every single day. We don't need an opera that highlights the fact that there are people in this world who see that there is a problem, know that they don't they don't want it for themselves or people they love and do nothing to stop it. Um, this is evident everywhere in our society. So yet another example of white people doing nothing to stop racism is just a drop in the ocean of apathy that we've seen in the system of white supremacy. So I'm going to say this and white people, please hear me loud and clear. We don't give a fuck about how guilty you are about slavery and racism, because your guilt alone has done nothing to dismantle the system your ancestors created that continues to marginalize people. Feeling bad isn't the same as making amends, and I'm not alone in this. A petition created by John Jay College student Maya Bishop on change.org calls for the cancellation of the upcoming premiere of Emmett Till and American Opera, and it has garnered over 13,000 signatures as of March 25th, 2022. Bishop says in the petition, telling the story from a perspective of a fictional progressive white woman shows that Claire Cost is more concerned with showing the audience that not all white people are bad than she is about the ongoing fight for racial justice. And the casting of adult tenor Robert Mack in the role of Till has also drawn controversy with the petition asserting that it exacerbates the adult- adultification of Black children, which has historically led to their brutalization. I think that my thoughts are perfectly encapsulated in the statement on the petition. If we are going to tell the story of Emmett Till, it should be from a Black perspective, a Black writer, and with permission and approval from Till's family. But I'm going to pass it back to you, Daquan. Do you think it was her place to tell the story? Is that even a question? (laughs) Like,
1: as I was reading the question, I was like, I don't even know if I can get through this question because (laughs) it's, it's it's no secret that this is not her place, not her place at all. Because it's just so tiring to have stories about Black trauma centering white people. Like, (laughs) this story is not for you to tell. You are telling a story about a Black person being lynched as a white playwright. Like, that's already just like, okay you know, there can be some problems there, but let's see how they add nuance and everything like that. And then you decided to make the narrative focus, the narrative focus, this white teacher who feels bad. And it's like, I agree with the petition that this sends a message that the most important part of this story is looking to the past and being like, it wasn't everybody that was racist. There were good people. And it's like, People know that, people know that, you know, everybody doesn't have the same mindset during a specific time. Like that Mm -hmm. shouldn't even need to be said because it's frankly understood. The biggest problem is that this is just another conversation that I hate to have, but like, I am so tired of people misusing Black activist words. Ooh, Daquan,
0: go off Daquan, go off Daquan. When
1: she quoted, when she quoted Till Mobley, I was just like, you frankly misunderstood the entire concept of the quote, because it says, the world must help me tell the story. The world must help me tell the story, help, not, the world must tell the story. Mm -hmm. The world must help. So as you being the ally that you are, being a help does not mean telling the story based off of your own experience. You helping is uplifting Black voices who are already telling the story. You helping is uplifting Black voices and experiences who are experiencing this still to this day. And it's one of these things that As a writer, I can't, frankly, I can't imagine, but I can't imagine (laughs) how you write a story like this. Because as somebody that does talk about a lot of Black death in my work, it's so heavy of a topic to talk about. And it's also something that I talked about in one of my poems about like how uncomfortable it is to basically hold somebody's life in your hands in your mouth as you are speaking this story as you are putting pen to paper you are literally carrying a dead body into this world and you have to deal with that and you put it out into this world to have people look at you and be like wow this was great you are so great and you're profiting off of somebody else's death you are profiting off of somebody else's lynching, like that's hard for me to deal with. But you, Claire Cause, as a
0: white person, <laughs> out of here, get out of here. No, I fully agree. DeQuan, I knew you were gonna say something when you when I when I saw her use that Till Mobley quote. I knew you were. Gonna, I was like, DeQuan, about to pop off. <laughs> but um, I fully agree with you. Said I think that I, I am just. Honestly, I am so tired of white people profiting off of Black suffering. I'm tired of seeing our trauma dramatized for film and TV over and over and over and over again. Now, make no mistake. um, We do need to learn about the horrific nature of America's past in regard to slavery to ensure that that type of tragedy never occurs again. However, we have an overwhelming number of current day examples of the brutality against Black people in the news and on social media to re-traumatize us for generations to come. We don't need any more fictional depictions of it. Um, Right, or even just like
1: going back to the quote, like this happened 60 years ago. There are people alive who saw that. There are people alive who witnessed that, who were adults during when that happened that are Mm -hmm. frankly serving in our government in certain roles, but that's another conversation. (laughs) But that's all to say that there are literally people who have that experience, who lived through it and are seeing the after effects of it, are seeing what they experienced during that time happen over and over again. And Mm -hmm. those are the voices that need to be centered.
0: Exactly. I think Emmett Till's story has been told. It is out in the world and we should absolutely never forget the atrocity that took place in Mississippi on August 28th, 1955. But a white woman believing that she is the appropriate storyteller for the story of a black child who was murdered because of the lies of a white woman does not sit right in my soul." Okay, costs, she crossed the line, point blank period. Um, In simpler terms, how would you feel if someone murdered your loved one because of prejudice and I took it upon myself to write a story about how their murder, um, it made me feel bad to hear about it. And I I just want people to know that I was sorry that it happened. I don't know, Daquan, that sounds a little self-centered to me, don't you? Absolutely.
1: It's (laughs) it's more than a touch.
0: It is is entirely
1: self-centering. And I also think that in this situation, we have to consider like, as a writer, you write for an audience. And it's like, who is the audience that this is supposed to go out to? Because the only audience I can think of is white people that cannot empathize with black people. And if that's your audience for this story, it's it's gonna fall on deaf ears because they already don't empathize with black people. So hearing it from a white perspective is not gonna awaken the ally in them, not gonna awaken the activists in them. If anything, they're gonna be like, oh, well, like it's sad, but whatever, we're past that. You
0: know? Absolutely. In an article written by Meredith Nardino on USA Today, we learn about celebrity couples who never got married. One of the most popular couples who were never married was Kurt Russell and Goldie Hahn. Hahn was previously married to Gus Trichinonis from 1969 to 1976 and to Bill Hudson from 1976 to 1982, before she sparked her romance with Russell in 1983. The big screen icons never tied the knot and Han thinks they're the better for it. Um, I would have had a long, I would have been long since divorced if I'd been married. Marriage is an interesting psychological thing. If you need to feel bound to someone, then it's important to be married, the First Wives Club actress said during a 2015 appearance on the UK's Loose Women. If you have independence and you have enough money and sense of independence and you like your independence, there's something psychological about not being married because it gives you the freedom to make decisions one way or the other. Han asserted that both she and Russell liked the choice of staying put in their relationship without the pressure of marriage. Russell, for his part, exchanged vows with Susan Hubley in 1979. The pair divorced after less than five years together, which impacted Russell's perspective in his romance with Han. Russell told Today Magazine in November 2020 that, quote, we said that if it was ever an issue, if the kids feel we need to do this, then we'll get married. And Han chimed in and said, they didn't want us to get married. So this begs an interesting, uh, a very interesting question, Daquan. Um, do you think that marriage is necessary to have a loving relationship? Not
1: at all. In fact, I think that nine times out of 10, people get married as a testament to how loving a relationship is. Nobody's going to be like, oh, I want to get married to fall in love with someone. Like, Mm -hmm. that sounds crazy, frankly. You date to fall in love with somebody. You go on consistent dates and you have, and you officiate a relationship with somebody to fall in love with someone, but you don't get married to do so. Mm -hmm. And so I think that anything that you have in a marriage, you had outside of the marriage. The only difference is, You have official papers. Mm -hmm. And so it's absolutely not necessary for a loving relationship. However, it is something that's kind of just necessary in our society in the sense that with marriage comes, you know, being able to, like, visit somebody in the hospital if they're very ill. It comes with tax benefits. It comes with all of these legal things that makes a marriage a marriage. So it's not really about love, it's more about legality.
0: Yeah, um I don't know. I don't think marriage is necessary to have a loving relationship in the slightest either. Um I think that a lot of people would like to believe that and that's part of the problem with how we as a society view marriage as a whole. Um but first let me say this. Um marriage will not make a person love you. Marriage will not make a person remain faithful to you. Marriage will not make a person more considerate. They will not suddenly become romantic. They will not suddenly become more emotionally available. And last and not least, it will not make them stay with you. Marriage is not the cheat code of a relationship. It's not the real life hack that will force a person to be everything that they never were in the first place. So stop marrying people because you think that it will change them because it will never happen. Um, Any change you may perceive after marriage or marriages you've seen in your life is only happening because that person decided to change for themselves, not for their partners. Now back to the question. Um, (laughs) There are are several examples um, we've seen where people are totally in love and not married. Um, too many people have this notion that marriage is like more real than just being in love with someone. They believe that marriage is a stronger commitment somehow, and that if you aren't married, you aren't in love enough. Um, While it is true that marriage can be one of the most traditional ways for people to display their love to the world, it is hardly the only way to show your partner that you love them. Let's not forget that at one point, Gay couples were not allowed to be legally married, neither were interracial couples, neither were couples of trans identities, nor enslaved people before the Civil War. So if marriage is the litmus for a loving relationship, then that completely discounts the unions of people all across time who didn't fit into what was considered the mold of marriage of society at that time. I think that the way we view marriage is outdated. Um, There are some people who seek that kind of union in their life, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that there are too many relationship dynamics that exist, like throuples, polyamory, that challenge the notion of marriage because those relationships are just as fulfilling and sometimes more loving than couples in traditional marriages. Well, I don't think that we should throw away marriage. I do think that we need to retire the concept that marriage has to be this final destination for every relationship. But what about you, Daquan? I mean, do you think that society holds a higher value to marriage than simply just being in a loving relationship? Oh, absolutely. I think
1: going back to the idea of all of the like legal benefits, that is a factor in how higher they see marriage than just a relationship. Like, yeah, there are like the de facto marriages of like, if you are together living in the same home, for X amount of years, you're like legally married or technically <laughs> married or whatever uh-huh. in the eyes of the law. But it's one of these things where we have been taught that, you know, that's like the path of life. It's you live your life up to a certain amount, you date, you then get engaged, you get married happily ever after you die. Mm -hmm. And it's like, as we spoke about with, like, happily ever afters, like, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Like, we've seen so many different marriages where they were married, but it wasn't a loving relationship at all. Mm -hmm. And that's how so many marriages also end. And so I think that when it comes to how society views marriages, I think that because it's something that's on paper, that it's the legal definition of a relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: is why it has this prescribed higher value. It's been something that has been gate kept from so many aspects, so many different people in our society, like you said before. So as the notion of marriage is expanding, then people are now seeing like, okay, marriage isn't, you know, all that. There's more yeah. than just wanting to ascribe to marriage. And so I think that's also why you saw so much pushback when it came to things about interracial marriages or gay marriages or stuff like that, because that changed the legal definition of marriage. And if there are people who you prescribe as being lower in society, having a privilege that you have being higher in society, that's going to quote unquote devalue that aspect of marriage and so I think that it's one of these things that more and more as we move as a society, we're going to start valuing marriages less and less because we realize that frankly, it's just paperwork.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that there's there's also a lot of pressure that comes with being married that people don't realize they put on couples. Um, I remember the story this one couple told me that um, they got engaged, but they only did so because they felt pressured by their family and friends. They said that people kept asking them about what they were going to do next because they'd been together for so long, and the guy's parents kept badgering him about proposing to his girlfriend, and he just did it because he thought that's what he should do, and she said yes because she thought that's what they should do together. Um, they thought that it would stop their family and their friends from pressuring them, but Then all the planning and venues and arrangements and invitations came and the questions and pressures didn't let up at all. I mean, after they were engaged, both of their parents were asking um, when they were gonna have kids, when they were gonna buy a house together and so on and so forth. And soon they decided to call off the engagement altogether. Um, They said that even though they didn't get married, they still stayed in a relationship and they were together for about 10 more years before they decided to get married in secret one day, just because they felt that that's what they wanted in their relationship at the time. Um, And they said that if they were to got married back then, um, they were both sure that they would've been divorced by now. And that just, just, it just blew my mind. Like Daquan, I just wanna ask you, do you think that the pressure of being married can sometimes actually do more harm to a couple than good? Oh, absolutely. Because
1: we have this kind of prescribed ideal marriage life. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you get married, people are going to, uh, expect that ideal life for you. They're going to expect, oh, you got married, the house, the kids, the 2.5 kids and a picket fence, dog, cat maybe, <laughs> who knows, yeah. whatever. They're going to expect that idealized life for you after you get married. And that can cause a lot of pressure. And I also think that with marriage comes a lot of pressure in that kind of death to do us part or, you know, love for good and for the bad or whatever the saying goes, because it puts a pressure on you that because you're married, you have to make this work. Mm -hmm. You have to make this work. And even, you know, getting to religion, like there's a lot of people who feel like getting divorce is against religion because, you know, a marriage is a, not only a legal union, but a religious union. And so Mm -hmm. you are then, disgracing or disrespecting your religious beliefs by getting divorced. And that can also add a pressure that now that you're married, now that you've gone through all of these different things with securing a venue, paying for a wedding, because weddings are so expensive, Hell not only that, but court fees, mm-hmm. marriage license fees, all of that stuff you invested in this relationship. And so when you're that invested in a relationship, it's harder and harder to get out. And it's also harder and harder to kind of re-advance into society. Because after you've been married for a while and after you get to a certain age, that dating pool gets smaller and smaller. (laughs) And so many people are already married or Mm -hmm. at this point they're not looking for marriage anymore. And it becomes this game of just like, you feel like the world has moved past you and now you're back at stage one. And that's a lot of pressure for somebody. So they stay in the marriage. If they're unhappy, they're like, all right, we'll work through it, we'll work through it, we'll work through it. But working through it doesn't really solve any of the issues that came from that pressure in the first place.
0: Exactly, I think that there is a lot of pressure that comes with being married. I think that so many people don't understand that you know, while it worked uh, before for some people and while it may work in some circles, not everybody is supposed to be married and not every relationship can survive what comes with being in a marriage. You know, there's a different, even though I don't believe that um, marriage changes people, I believe that it, the relationship status, the having to sign things together, having to be considered one unit or whatever can Put a lot of unnecessary um, pressure and strain on a relationship that um, is so used to freedom because there are some relationships that thrive in the freedom of just being together. And it's the idea that, you know, I, I keep what I have, you keep what you have. And the idea of meshing together in such a legally binding way can sometimes be put a very, very hard weight and, like I said, a very hard strain on that couple and some couples just can't survive that kind of commitment or that kind of, um, uh, like I said, legal binding. So I think that while, you know, for some people it really is a great thing and it really does help them, you know, solidify, you know, their relationship or it really, f- it feels like a destination for them. Um, I don't feel that, you know, we should, we just need to stop pressuring people into being in that kind of relationship because if that person, I'll say this, If a person wants to be married to someone else, they will be. There's no need to tell them about it. There's no need to badger them about it. If somebody wants to be married, they will be married. If somebody doesn't, they won't. It doesn't really matter what you say. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, 100%. It's one of these things that's when you're dating, you are dating somebody because you want to be with them. Mm -hmm. That's like the whole freedom of dating. But when you're married, it's like you're forced to be with them. So if somebody wants something, they're going to go out and get it. But nobody wants to be forced to do something.
0: Exactly. And I wanted to ask you, Daquan, um, since we're on the topic, do you think you'd ever get married, Daquan, and do you have any ideas about your ceremony if it's yes, Honestly, it's one of
1: these things that I, I don't really plan. <laughs> anything around it. It's one of those things where if it happens, it happens, but I'm not out here trying to, you know, figure things out or come up with these Mm -hmm. plans. (laughs) But, you know, it's one of these things that I think that the ideal ceremony, if I did, would have to be a reflection of that relationship. So unless I'm in that relationship, there's not really a point in planning something or having this dream
0: wedding in my mind. Okay. Well, for me, I don't know, surprisingly, I am totally open to the idea of being married one day, Um, but only if I ended up with just one partner. Um, If I end up having like two partners, we couldn't be legally married, but I would still love to have like a commitment ceremony with a ring exchange and a vow of our love made in front of our friends and family. Um, I'm a firm believer in premarital slash couples counseling. Um, Mm -hmm. So we would absolutely have to be in that for at least a year before we decided to tie the knot or have the commitment ceremony in either situation. Um I actually do have an idea. Um I'd love to have a very intimate ceremony in either situation, preferably in a cabin with a fireplace because of it is romantic. <laughs> um although for me Um, marriage isn't a deal breaker whatsoever. Like if my partner or partners don't see a need for it, it wouldn't be the end of the world for me at the fuck all. Marriage is not a goal for me whatsoever. It's a luxury that I can do, you know, with or without (laughs) either way.
1: (laughs) So director Jane Campion has apologized to tennis legends Venus and Serena Williams For her thoughtless remarks about the pair during a Sunday evening acceptance speech at the Critics' Choice Awards. Campion, a white woman from New Zealand, was accepting the award for Best Director for her film The Power of the Dog when she made the comments. In her speech, Campion, the only woman nominated in the category, praised the Williams sisters as marvels in their craft, but implied that the two black women did not face the same battles in gender equality as women in film. Quote, Serena and Venus, you are such marvels. However, you don't play against the guys like I have to, end quote, Campion said with a laugh. Her remarks were met with swift backlash on social media where commenters pointed out the years of racism and sexism the Williams sisters faced in their careers. Some describe the idea of a white woman from a socially privileged background had somehow a more difficult route to success than two black tennis powerhouses as perfectly emblematic of white feminism. Campion has since apologized for her remarks stating, quote, I made a thoughtless comment equating what I do in the film world with all that Serena Williams and Venus Williams have achieved. I did not intend to devalue these two legendary Black women and world-class athletes. The fact is the Williams sisters have actually squared off against men on the court and off, and they both have raised the bar and opened doors for what is possible for women in this world. The last thing I would ever want to do is minimize Remarkable women. End quotes. With that being said, in the words of Cardi B, what was the reason? Why do you think that Campion made the comments at all?
0: Before I answer this question, I just want to address Jane Campion directly. Um, you couldn't just say thank you. You couldn't just say, this is such an honor. Thank you all so much. Have a lovely lovely evening. And just as it exit, exit the stage. <laughs> black women stay on your mind like that
1: that you can't just not think
0: about them. Like she wouldn't even have to make an apology at all if she didn't say anything about these black women or or simply just ended the statement with like Venus and Serena, you two are marvels. Thank you all so much. And I mean, d- just stop there. Just stop there. You were doing so good up until that one part. You just had to keep going, didn't you? <sighs> Y'all yeah, well, need to
1: be more like Adele. <laughs> be more like Adele, who is like Beyonce. You are queen.
0: Like, oh God. But you said what you said, so let's go ahead and get into it, Miss Campion. Um. We all know the reason why she said what she said. Um, (laughs) Whether it was intentional or not, she said what she said to do exactly what she apologized for, minimizing the success of Venus and Serena. In her white mind, she believed that she endured more patriarchy, more suffering, and more struggle than a Black woman. Just as Serena said in her tweet about New York Times that we literally just talked about, No matter how far we come, we are reminded that we are not enough. And I think that this situation right here is the perfect example of that. Um, This statement Jane made was unwarranted, unwelcomed, and unprompted, yet she said it anyway and laughed it off because she believed that she was right. Black people, successful Black women specifically, like you said, Daquan, stay on the minds for white people for no reason at all. Because whether or not Jane believes it, the impact of her words were reinforcing the idea that successful Black women need to be brought down a peg because in the eyes of white society, Black people will never be on their level. Twitter user um, Guitaring Lancey summed it up beautifully, stating, seriously speaking, there is so much to unpack from this. But to start, why do you want to one-up yourself by stepping on Black women? They aren't your enemy. And Jane, this apology girl, I can't with the, I made a thoughtless comment and that I did not intend. <sighs> Possible Though, thoughts
1: to your comments. Have you <laughs> never heard the phrase
0: think before you speak? Like, a big one. like, I mean, at least in her full apology, she did apologize directly to Venus and Serena, which feels like the bare minimum. But in our society, it's more than what many white celebrities have done in response to accusations of racism and microaggressions. But what she should have said was this. Um, The comment I made was wrong because what I said minimized the fact that Venus and Serena exist in the intersections of Blackness and womanhood, and what they have done in spite of that is remarkable. It was my ignorance of that intersectionality that led me to believe that my struggles as a white woman were anywhere near more difficult than their struggles as Black women. I am deeply sorry and will make a conscious effort to do the work to understand my privilege better." That's what the fuck I was looking for in this apology. That's not what we got, though. I'm going to need you to do way better, Jane, and do some research because in the phrasing of the infamously iconic Miranda Priestley, white people succeeding in a racist society, groundbreaking. This is going to sound <laughs> so
1: controversial, but hear me out. OK, Daquan. Jane was kind of right with what she said, but not in the way that she was saying it. So she said that Venus and Serena Williams don't play against the guys like Campion does. And in that sense, she's right, because not only are the Williams sisters playing against the guys for simply being a woman, but they're playing against the guys for being a black person as well, and on top of that, being a black woman. So when you think about it, there is some, you know, something right about that statement because we know, Forts, <laughs> we know that black women are constantly facing so many different types of microaggressions, major aggressions and overall having their accomplishments downplayed. That's the absolute truth. We've talked about it so many times. But not only that, as a black woman in a sports field, we already know that black women are often masculinized and Mm -hmm. that black women are not afforded womanhood with white women. So not only having that masculinization of black women, but also playing a sport, playing a masculine thing is Mm -hmm. also another layer. So she's right in the sense that they aren't playing with the guys like she is. They're playing with the guys even more because Mm -hmm. of all of the different, overlapping intersectional oppressions that they face. However, with that being said, I still don't like that statement because that was not what she was going for at all. That was not (laughs) her intention at all. She did not have that level of critical race theory in that statement. With all that being said, fuck that statement. Um, But The apology. What's the saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. (laughs) <laughs> I don't give a damn what your intentions was with the comments. I really don't care that you think that the last thing you ever would want to do is minimize remarkable women because the fact is you did that. It doesn't matter if it's the last thing you do or the first thing you do, you did that. And so I need you to take real accountability, not just, oh, I'm it was a thoughtless comment because the fact is a Black woman like Venus and Serena Williams do not have the privilege to make a thoughtless comment. Yeah, Every single she... aspect of them are mm. analyzed to the deepest degree, whether it's their body language, how their faces move, the tone in which they speak, the the pace of which they speak, the words that they are saying or not saying, the level of their vernacular, their vocabulary, they aren't afforded the opportunity to make a thoughtless comment. So in this instance, you just showed your privilege. You've showed your whole ass privilege in this statement, in this apology. And frankly, like, I'm tired. <laughs> Get out of here.
0: Daquan, oh, you eat, bitch. You is eating because right now, bitch. All I could think of when you said that statement right there is that Serena and Venus Williams do not have the luxury of making thoughtless comments. We know, we know. For Even fact. in the
1: sports field, like they get judged so hard. They get judged as being so aggressive when it comes to just their frustrations for losing a match. Mm-hmm. We've seen that reported on time and time again. And it's like, again, going back to how Black women are masculinized, they are also deemed as being more aggressive simply because they're Black. And like, again, that is why it's so important to have an understanding about race and how it
0: impacts people's everyday lives. And I I also think that like when it comes to this situation specifically too, like, you know... (laughs) We know that Jane Campion is not going to be, there's nothing that's going to happen. Like, you know, she's going to move on from this. She's going to still get opportunities, all that good stuff. Not that she should be canceled for this, but I think it's really, it's really telling how Jane is just able to make an apology and just move on and, you know, make a thoughtless comment. And this, I don't know, Daquan, this kind of feels a little similar to how, you know, Whoopi Goldberg made a thoughtless comment and was railed online over and over again, so much so that she was suspended um, for making a thoughtless comment. Um, So I just, it's just making me think, like, hmm, it's mm. very interesting how white women and white men are able to make thoughtlessly racist comments to make um all of these generaliz- generalizations, minimizing people, saying racial slurs, and just, oh, it's just <laughs> made a mistake y'all, it's all right, I'm fine. And then black people do the same thing and it's like burn the witch, burn her. All of them. (laughs) Death, murder, and it's just, it's crazy. And I really think that Daquan, that's the real truth in the the matter. It's like we as black people are not afforded the same luxury as white people are when it comes to making mistakes. When we make a mistake, it is broadcasted, it is seen, people of color too. When people of color and black people make mistakes, we are held to an entirely different standard of um, having to atone for it in in a vastly steeper way than our white counterparts.
1: Right, and not only that, but we are seen as representations of our entire identity. They're Mm -hmm. gonna lump every single black person of color in with your statement. If one is aggressive, then they're all aggressive. Mm -hmm. If one is saying something problematic, they all must be thinking it. But in this instance, Campion has the privilege of individuality. Mm. On top of all of her other privileges. Dick Juan
0: <laughs> <Daquan. laughs> That's a whole other episode right there. <laughs> right, we could, we could go on forever
1: about that. Now the table is always hot with current events and social issues, but sometimes the heat can get a little intense. Let's turn the temp down take a breather and get into this week's topic cool down. So, Andre, I wanted to ask you, do you think that it's better to be too confident or too humble? And what would you rather be seen as in terms of being too confident or too humble? And what would you rather the people around you to be like?
0: Um I think that both extremes are bad. Um, When you're too confident, you're unaware of your faults and the ways in which you can improve. Um, When you're too humble, that can cause you to be unaware of your success and lessen your strive to improve as well. Um, The definition of humility is literally a modest or low view of one's self-importance and in excess that could be incredibly damaging to your self-esteem and ability um also being too humble can sometimes manifest in a form of imposter syndrome which means the inability to believe that one's success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved it's kind of like when people go to award shows and are like i knew that i got this award but i think that x y and z deserve the award more which completely diminishes the impact that your achievement made. I think that we should all try our best to strive for a happy medium. Um, Confidence and humility can work hand in hand. You can be confident in your skills as a writer, but also humble enough to take criticism of your work so that you can become an even stronger, more confident storyteller. Um, You would never be arrogant if your confidence is always checked by your humility. And sometimes being incredibly confident isn't a bad thing, especially in going for your career field um no matter what you do with your life you're going to hear no's and rejections but you can never let that shake your confidence in your talent i'm not going to get too deep into this because we're saving that for another discussion but what i will say is that um incredible confidence is necessary to keep you pushing forward the world around you will always humble you but you have to have the confidence to know that even though you aren't the best in the world and that there is always someone more skilled in your profession than you, you're still a bad bitch. And your contribution to your career field is just as important as the next person's. Um, but as far as um, which one I'd rather want to be seen as or what I would like people to around me to be like, um, it would have to echo my answer to the first question. Be confident in who you are and what you do And be open to bettering yourself and perfecting your craft. No matter how successful you are, there is always room for improvement. And as long as you are open to that constructive criticism and apply it, you will only be the better for it. But what about you, Daquan? What do you think? What do you think?
1: I think, you know, I agree on some sense that, like, you know, the perfect world, it's having the blend of both confidence and humility. Like, that is the ideal. Um, But when it comes to just, like, If I had to choose one, I would rather be too confident than too humble. Because Mm -hmm. when you have a marginalized identity, when you have multiple overlapping marginalized identities, society forces you to be humble. Society puts the onus on you to be humble because it's like you should be humble because you are not good enough you don't walk these same lives that all of these other people have they earned their spots there they, it wasn't because of some systematic racism or whatever they earned their place there you just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it done and if jane you want, jane
0: is cool. that you is that you jane <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> not jane <laughs> miss Campion, if you're nasty <laughs>
0: I'm sorry, Nick White. go ahead, I'm sorry. I had to put that in there. But
1: I think that, um, where was I? <laughs> Completely, bro. <laughs> <through. laughs> but no, no, okay. So society forces you to be humble. And like you said before, society will humble you time and time again. Mm-hmm. And so I would rather be seen as the person that's too confident. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, being too humble becomes so annoying so quickly. It is. Like, to being too confident is also pretty annoying sometimes with being mm-hmm. too humble. Seeing somebody that's always down on themselves, that's just like, oh, I don't deserve this, I shouldn't be getting this, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you got it. Somebody <laughs> didn't get it, and you got it, but like, be grateful for it. Don't put yourself down. And also, when we also think about just like how the universe works, if you imagine a lemon in your mind, you think about cutting a lemon open, you think about squeezing the lemon and the juice is coming out, you think about taking a bite out of the lemon, that has an effect on your mind. You start to really imagine it and you know maybe your mouth waters, maybe you start to pucker up or something like that. The same thing can happen with your thoughts on just like your creativity and your craft. If you are constantly thinking that you don't deserve something, that you are too lesser than, that you can't do something, you're too humble, you're going, your manifestations in your mind is going to become that reality. It's going to be, oh, I don't deserve this. So like I'm not even going to try. I'm not mm. that good. So I'm not going to put in all of that effort. But if you're seen as too confident, then you're like, I can do that. And you may Mm -hmm. fail, you may be humbled, Mm -hmm. but you have that confidence to then move on past that, to be like, all right, this didn't fail. But next time I got it, it's going to happen. Like this, the, the numbers will be numbering at some points, the checks will come through at some points. And so I also think that seeing a confident person of color is so much more powerful than seeing a humbled person of color. Because frankly, everybody yeah. can be humbled. But seeing somebody that is confident in their selves, in their mm. identity, in what they do, despite what the world tells them,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: is true power. And that is something that I don't mind being seen as.
0: Yeah, I think that there is definitely an understanding that, you know, as a person of color or as a black person, you have to walk in a sense of confidence you have to be overconfident to a de- to a degree because you have to walk in the space of knowing that you are combating against so many different intersections Um, if you are Black and a Black woman, or if you're Black, a Black woman, and you are a queer person, you know? There are so many varying intersections that society tells you that you are not enough, that you will never be enough, that you are never going to make it. And so you have to walk in a level of um, confidence to know, fuck society, I'm gonna keep going because I know I'm good at what I do. I know that I'm here to offer something real and offer something unique and authentic an individual. And so I think that there is there's an under, there's an understanding within um you know POC circles and black circles that you know while we are expected to be humble um we have to remind ourselves to celebrate ourselves because if you notice a lot of the times too you know you know, when a black person does do something well, they sometimes are going like, "Oh, well, you know, I, I mean, I, I try, but thank you." Or they're like, they're very. It's very hard for them to take the compliment or take the praise because, like you said before, we're often taught to keep ourselves quiet, keep mm-hmm. our accomplishments. Within ourself and not to allow that to make your head too big or oh if you say oh girl I did this or I, or you, even if you just simply share an accomplishment with someone and say hey you know Daquan I did X Y and Z um it's it can sometimes feel subconsciously like you're saying oh I'm better than you even if that's not at all what it is it kind of in your mind in our in in the PT you know PTSS, you know post traumatic slave syndrome you know I- I- ideology um you know, it traces back. It has roots in slavery that, you know, when we see people succeeding in a world, in a white world, um, we think they had to do something to get it. We They had to compromise themselves some way to get it. Because when you look back in slavery and you look at, um, you know, uh, those who did succeed in some areas, the um, overseers who were Black who were told to whip the other people, and, you know, people who were quote unquote pushed into the house as house slaves, and they, quote-unquote, lived a better life, quote-unquote, because I say that because we all know that uh, they were still treated just as bad as, you know, everybody. Every, black race slavery was yeah. bad, period. But we're not getting into that. This is a cool-down. But, um, but, you know, there is this kind of, there's this kind of, um, this history there, this kind of, this post-traumatic slave syndrome that traces all the way back there. And so even at, even now in this new day and age, we still have a problem with, celebrating ourselves and celebrating our accomplishments because we, like you said, are just taught not to, and we're taught to lower ourselves than to uplift ourselves and each other. Right. Now, whew, so many children grow up, never knowing the full scope of what their culture has contributed to society and history. And baby, I think it's time for a change, Daquan, don't you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, let's take a pause, rewind, and remind the world just how we did that. In the article written on NPS, written by Dr. Catherine Crawford Lackey, we learn about Septima Poinsett Clark. Many Southern states enforced segregation until the mid 1900s, meaning that white schools did not allow African-American students to attend. Due to the color of her skin, Clark was not allowed to teach in the Charleston public school system. And instead, she had to accept teaching positions in rural school districts. Clark and others thought that it was unfair, and they protested to win African Americans the right to teach at Charleston Public Schools. The campaign was successful, and Clark was convinced that social activism had the power to better the lives of African Americans. In the 1950s, Clark and the NAACP advocated for the integration of public schools. Her involvement in the NAACP did not go unnoticed by the Charleston City School Board. Clark was asked to keep her membership in the NAACP a secret, but she refused. As a result, the school board fired her. No longer employed, she devoted all of her time to activism. Clark designed educational programs to teach African-American community members how to read and write. She thought that this was important in order to vote and gain other rights. Her idea of citizen education became the cornerstone of the civil rights movement. She worked with Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the CSLC, to win the rights for African-Americans. Septima Clark continued to serve as an advocate and a leader until her death in 1987. Do we have to black say it, Daquan? Black women. Do we women. have to say it? <laughs> Let's say Black men. Black women. Black women. Black women. Black women. <laughs> I, just, I just love this story
1: because, you know, we all hear about Brown v. Board of Education. We all mm-hmm. hear about that landmark Supreme Court case. But oftentimes, the people who are doing the grassroots activism, the people mm-hmm. who are on the ground doing the activist work of educating their communities often go unheard of. So, Props to this black woman, this black educator, this black activist, because that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, it very. So Deborah Batts was a US district court judge for the Southern District New York for 25 years. She received degrees from Radcliffe College and Harvard University Law School. Batts began her legal career with the firm of Kravith, Swain, and Moore in New York City. Later, she was appointed Assistant US Attorney in Manhattan. In 1984, she became the first African-American appointed to the faculty at Fordham University School of Law in New York, where she taught for three decades. After serving as an associate professor of law at Fordham for 10 years, Bats was nominated for the federal branch by President Bill Clinton, making her the nation's first openly lesbian African-American federal judge. She passed away unexpectedly at her home in Manhattan on February 3rd, 2020, following complications after knee replacement surgery. Black queer women. right i just felt that this is just so timely hearing about a black woman doing things in a law doing things being a judge with everything that is happening with the supreme court economy nomination but that's a conversation for another
0: day <laughs> now as always Thank you all so much for watching and keep the conversation going down in the comment box below. Don't forget to give this video a thumbs up. And if you are listening to us on our podcast, please rate and review on whatever platform you're using. You can also follow us on our podcast and our Instagram at The Melanin Margin for updates on new content and on TikTok as well, don't forget. (laughs) Don't forget that TikTok.
1: And if you'd like to follow each of us, our handles are at DaquanMUE and at Andre AndreTalksAlot. Now, we will see you all next week on the Melanin Margin, where our goal is always to bring the marginalized to the spotlight in any way we can. Goodbye now.